Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts again as we come before God's word together. Well, Father, as we come now before your word to study these things this morning, we pray you give us understanding. Lord, help us to understand what it is you want us to know from these things that you have revealed. And Lord, how they should impact and affect our lives. Lord, it's good just to have an academic understanding of these things and to know what's going to happen. But Lord, we pray that it would go much deeper. And that Lord, it really would permeate our thinking. and Challenge the way, Lord, that we live our lives. Lord, as we understand the reality of these things, Father, may they not just be events that are written down that don't stir us. But Lord, we pray that they would impact us. Father, we just pray your blessing upon this time that we'll be edified and encouraged. Lord, just give us ears to hear, we pray. And Lord, give me now a mouth that we just speak that which you would have. And Lord, that we would grow together in knowledge and grace. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's just have a quick overview of where we've got to in our study. We're coming towards the end of the book of Revelation now. Um, it's an incredible book. I mean, the chapter one begins with this introduction uh, that John gives us, uh, seemingly written after the book. He's kind of he's finished the vision. He's gone back. He's written this introduction uh, as he sends this letter, this vision across to the churches um, in the mainland. So again, he received the vision on the Isle of Patmos. But chapter one, really, John gives us there this vision that he had of Jesus, and we talked about the time how incredible it was that John had accompanied Jesus, had been with him for three and a half years of ministry, and become very close. Seemingly it was John that at the Last Supper was sat down and kind of leaning against Jesus, a very kind of close friendship. But John at that time had no concept of who Jesus really was. And whilst they believed to some degree while Jesus was on earth, for John now to see Jesus in his glory, exalted, it would just been almost heart-stopping, and we see John fall at Jesus' feet as if dead. In the next couple of chapters, Jesus himself writes these letters to the seven churches. They're, they're probably the most applicable part of the book in many ways to us right now, because there's so much to draw from them. You know, These are letters that Jesus himself has written to you and to I, to the church. And we've said already there's a, a prophetic element to this where they cover the whole of church history. No question about that, it's there. But we sometimes get caught up in that and forget to look at the practical applications that the Lord would have us draw from those things for our own lives. So it's always worth just going back over those. It's not, not a huge amount of text, but just worth just reading through those letters and asking the Lord to speak to you. Because therefore, whoever has ears to hear. So each one of us can benefit as the Lord would speak to us through those letters. But in chapter 4 and 5, we see a kind of a scene change. We go from this earth at the end of the church age, as it were, and we're caught up to heaven. John, in his vision, caught up to heaven and sees the throne. He sees this incredible vision, this incredible situation that's really hard to uh, give it the, the import that it really deserves. He sees this lamb as it had been slain in the midst of the throne. I mean, we talked at the time, it's very hard to try and communicate just how that will be when we are there in heaven and we look upon Jesus with, effectively, as the the text implies, the marks of slaughter upon this one who had been slain for us. We see already, and we've sung this morning, um, crowning with many crowns. And of course it comes from chapter 4 as the saints before the throne uh, are we read elsewhere in scripture in Second Corinthians and First Corinthians chapter 3 and so on. We'll get there, there'll be the judgment seat of Christ, the beamer seat. It's an award ceremony for those that believe. And we're given crowns as a reward for faithful service. But then we get to lay those crowns at Jesus' feet. So that takes us through that period of time as we see the, the elders, representative of the church, before the throne. But then we get into, if you like, the tribulation. And this is a such a, a common theme throughout scripture, we'll talk more in a moment, but the first part of this is a three and a half year period of time that Jesus himself refers to as the beginning of sorrows. And in chapter 6 we find that these seven seals are open, that are on this scroll. As this scroll is gradually loosened, these seals come off it, various things take place on earth as God's judgment begins, but in measure. We find that as a result of all this, God then seals 144,000 Jews, seemingly for the work of preaching the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. 
as opposed to the gospel of the grace of God. Let me just clarify those two things. We currently preach the gospel of the grace of God. The, the grace that makes the gospel available to anyone. And it's that salvation in Jesus' name alone. Now, of course, salvation is always only in Jesus' name, but there is a shift of emphasis when we get to the tribulation. It goes back to the same gospel that John the Baptist preached, which was the gospel of the coming kingdom. John's message was, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, John himself, when he preached that message, was saying, effectively, the kingdom will be restored to Israel. There will be a king again on the throne of David. And he'll be a righteous king, a just king, a true king. So repent. That was what John was preaching. John was actually surprised because seeing Jesus' ministry start to unfold, it didn't kind of seem as if Jesus was about to overthrow the Romans. So John himself, if you remember, sends some of his own disciples to go and say to Jesus, remember Jesus is John's cousin, but according to the flesh, but John sends his disciples to go and say, are you really the one? And of course Jesus sends them back with a message to hopefully get John to realise that there was much more going on than just the kingdom issue. You see, Jesus had to come the first time, and this is what we read about in Isaiah 53, as the suffering servant, the one who would come and pay for the sin of mankind, to restore that relationship with God that was broken at the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Even after the... Resurrection, the disciples asked Jesus the question, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Are you going to do it now? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He doesn't say it won't happen. He says, effectively, it's not yet. It's not for you to worry about. Not now. But now we get to this point, 144,000 seemingly are preaching. And as a result of this, a great multitude, now we'll see that mentioned in chapter 19 in a moment, this great multitude are brought out of the tribulation. These are those who maybe you spoke to. We have spoken to or will speak to before the time of the rapture of the church. But after the church is gone, a lot of people will go, they were right. The Christians were right. Those that put their faith and trust in Jesus, it was all true. And a great multitude will come to know the Lord during that first three and a half years. We then find the seven trumpets and again we have this judgment but in degrees. We find a third of the grass, a third of the seas, a third of the trees and so on are all destroyed and burned up. But it's in measure. Because God wants people to repent. God, remember, according to Peter, is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So although these things are getting progressively worse on earth, God is still giving man the opportunity to repent. And then we get to chapter 10. And it's like, okay, your warning time's up. You know, those of you who have children, you know, you know, right, on the count to three. One, two, three. And if they're not doing what they should be doing at that three, then they know trouble's coming. Well, that's what's happening here. Time is up. We see this angel put one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, and say, time is no more. Time is up. Now God is going to pour out his wrath on this earth. And he's going to claim back for Jesus this earth that Adam forfeited, that Adam lost. We then go back to the beginning of the three and a half years in chapter 11, and we kind of rerun that period of time, but from a different camera angle, if if you like. And we see these two witnesses that God will establish to witness in Jerusalem from this time. It may well be that a result of these two witnesses, the 144,000 get saved. We think, looking at the details we're given, that there'll be Moses and Elijah. And that God will supernaturally bring them back, that they will minister during this time. At the end of that three and a half years, Antichrist will put them to death. The world will be so fed up with them because you know what it's like when you talk to people about righteousness and God. And you know, I, I've said before that you know, within thirty seconds, you can prove to somebody that that Jesus is God, that the Word of God is true, and it's simply by just talk to them about Jesus. The moment you mention the name of Jesus, you watch people's attitude and reactions. You can talk to them about any other religious character in history, any other philosopher, and they won't bat an eyelid. You could talk to them about any fictional character. You can talk to them about the Easter money or whatever else. And they don't get wound up. But you talk to them about Jesus and people react. It's one of the greatest evidences that the Bible is true, that Jesus really is God manifest in the flesh. Because it's something within inside people that just reacts the moment you start talking about Jesus. Jesus is the name above all names. 
The least two witnesses are going to be speaking much about Jesus. And the world is going to get tired of them. They're going to get put to death. Three and a half days later, as the world watches on, we've got BBC News 24 and CNN and Sky News and all these others will be filming the events, no doubt, broadcasting it around the world. And the world is going to have a party. But at this point, the Lord is going to raise up these two witnesses and they're going to send up to heaven as the world watches on. Could you imagine what will be going on Facebook and Twitter and so on? It's going to crash with people just not knowing how to react or respond to these things. Well, following that point, we come to a set of chapters that deal with events that will occur at the three and a half year point. One of them being that Israel will be forced to flee from their land into the wilderness. And we have in chapter 12 this vision of the woman and the dragon. The dragon means Satan. The woman, effectively Israel. The clothing that has been around this with the seed of the woman all the way down from the Garden of Eden onwards in Genesis chapter 12. God chooses Abraham and says, effectively, I'm going to make you the covering to protect the seed. And so of course Satan does all that he can throughout history to destroy and get rid of Israel. And even up until this point, he's not going to give up on that particular plan. In chapter 13 we read about Antichrist himself. As Again, we talked in chapter 13, there are many names in scripture given to Antichrist. Uh, but that's the one that we tend to be most familiar with. And there's other character alongside him, the false prophet, who will cause an image that will be set up in the temple in Jerusalem to start to seemingly move and have life. And, and the world are going to be amazed at these miracles that are taking place. And they're going to get deceived by these things. Chapter 14, we find that those 144,000 are caught up to the throne. They're taken out of the way because God is now clearing the decks. Before his wrath really comes down, he's moving all those who are righteous out of the way. And so now we move into the last three and a half years. And Jesus spoke of this great tribulation being so great that unless it would be shortened, unless it would be kept to this particular defined time, no flesh would be saved. And it starts with, in chapter 15 and 16, these vials or bowls of judgment being poured out upon the earth and now without measure. We looked at the horror of those things. It's hard for us, in a sense, to get the scale of it. But it will make things like the Twin Towers, the atrocities in France, and and so many other things we've seen. It will make them seem minor and, and almost insignificant in scale. And that's not to belittle those events because they were serious and significant. But the events that will take place are going to be such a uh, cataclysmic, world-changing, world-shaking events that the world will have to sit up and take notice. Of course, the incredible thing is they still don't repent, even though they recognize that this judgment is coming from God. Well, then we get another camera angle, which will take us again back to the beginning, I believe, of the first three and a half years, And we look at the false religious system. And this is what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. And we see God bring judgment on this system. And that is destroyed, we find in Revelation 18, at the three and a half year point to make way now for Antichrist's kingdom. For Antichrist's world religion, which will effectively be worship of himself. Effectively Satan worship. During that last three and a half years. All other religions will be done away with. Everything will be destroyed. But of course, those two chapters are very important because it makes sense of so much of what we see in the world. So many of the false religions we see all have that root back in Babylon. And that brings us now to chapter 19, where we're going to see the marriage of the Lamb as the primary theme and certainly the one we tend to focus on most, and also the second coming. There's more in it than just that, as we'll see in a moment. Chapter 20, we're going to get to the millennium. This will be the thousand year reign of Christ when he establishes his throne in Jerusalem and reigns over the whole earth. And that will lead on to then at the end of that time, the great white throne. That is judgment day. That is the one that most people, when we talk about judgment day, kind of have in our minds. It's one where everybody will be called before God and will have to give account for everything they've ever said or done or thought. No one will escape. The only people who will not be standing there are those who have already been judged through Jesus Christ. We have no need to stand there because our sin has been paid for. And as God looks at our page in that book, there will be blank, there will be no sin because it's been covered and washed by the blood of Jesus. Then in chapters 21 and 22, as we'll move on to in a few weeks' time, we'll see this incredible new heavens and new earth that God is going to create, uh, which will be our eternal dwelling. It'll be be beyond anything we can imagine and uh, just, just... breathtaking in its glory and brilliance. 
So that's where we're heading. just want to make mention that John, after he'd written to these churches and recorded this, this revelation for us, ends up going back to Ephesus, we understand, and becomes pastor of the church there. While he was there, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And one of the things he makes mention of in the Gospel of John as well during his time is that he wants us to believe, certainly in 1st John, the re- one of the key reasons he writes that is that you might believe in his Gospel. John also seems to draw on many of the ideas and types that he's got from Revelation. You find in John's Gospel, it's arranged around sevens. Now, I don't think John had any intention of recording Revelation around sevens. That was God's design and pattern. But as John starts to write his Gospel, maybe John had this understanding already that God works in these ways. And of course, God inspired and led him to do so. But there's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, and a number of other seven groupings you find, similar ideas. The key word that's found in the Gospel of John is believe. It occurs a hundred times. That's why at the back there we've got those copies of the Gospel of John, just to take, to give to people. It's such a great Gospel. It's, it's an evangelistic Gospel. It's a Gospel of the good news to share with people. That's why John wrote it. Because he wants to convince people that these things are true, that he wants people to believe. The Greek word that we have there is pistio. It just simply means to have faith in or upon or primarily with respect to a person. So by implication, it's to entrust typically your spiritual well-being to Christ. That's what John means when he speaks about believing. It's not acknowledging the existence of. I mean, we're told that the devils, the demons believe and tremble. That's not the kind of belief that John is after when he wants us to believe. He's after us this, this kind of having faith that we entrust our spiritual well-being. You've, you've seen... Those uh, kind of truth and uh, games and, and trust games that people play, where you get two people standing and one person leans backwards and the person behind them catches them. I saw one the other day which made me laugh. It was this kind of same this distrust game, and there was two individuals, one standing there, one standing there. The person behind getting ready to catch the first behind in front, obviously decides that okay, well we're going to go with it. They shut their eyes and they fell that way. Forward, and of course, the person standing behind is just looking in disbelief. No, when we trust our well-being to Christ, we're not going to be let down. Jesus will not forsake us. But why should anybody entrust their spiritual well-being to Christ? Because you know, if he's just a man, as many people say, as the Gnostics in the first few centuries will tell us, he was just a man. Well, then why would you entrust anything to him? You know, Muhammad was just a man. Interestingly, up at the conference, there was a, a speaker. And by the name of Daniel Messiah, and we've got his books at the back there. Uh, he was imprisoned in Egypt for being a Christian, coming out of Islam. He was just asking the question about, you know, the question you can pose to, to Muslims. You know, who, who is it you follow? Who do you trust? He says, you know, where's Muhammad now? Well, Muhammad died. He's, he was buried. Where's Jesus? Even Muslims acknowledge that Jesus is alive. And Jesus returned to heaven. Who would you want to trust? Somebody who's dead or somebody who's alive? Well, Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh. He rose again. And of course, he is, as we're told in Scripture, our advocate with the Father. So the most important and sensible thing that anyone can do is entrust their spiritual well-being to Christ. We're told in 1 John 4, John tells us that he is the saviour of the world. He's the way, the truth, and the life, John tells us in his Gospel in chapter 14, verse 6. So on to this chapter then this morning. There's 1,845 references in the Old Testament to the second coming of Christ and to the events surrounding it. There's 17 books in the Bible that give prominence to this event. There's 318 references in the New Testament in the 216 chapters. I mean, it's more than one a chapter that we find. These references of the 23 books, uh, sorry, 23 of 27 books in the New Testament also give prominence to this event. I mean, it, it really is a, a key theme of Scripture. J. Barton Payne, in his uh, Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, says that for every prophecy of Christ's first coming, there are eight of His second coming. And that's staggering. We're all familiar with the many, many prophecies about the first coming of Christ. You know, we speak of the shepherds and the Bethlehem and all these things that were prophesied and foretold and so on. Well, there's eight prophecies of his second coming for every one of those prophecies of the first coming. In fact, the very first prophecy in the Bible 
uttered by a prophet is actually a prophecy about Jesus' second coming. It was uttered by Enoch, as recorded in the book of Jude. To keep you awake this morning, let's turn to the book of Jude. Let's just read what Jude records for us. So the book of Jude, almost at the end of the Bible, just before Revelation. It's just a one chapter book that we have. And it's verse 14 of Jude. And we have this prophecy that Jude kind of very kindly records, because otherwise we wouldn't have record of it. And verse 14 says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. That's us, by the way. We will be coming back with him. To execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. And of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You kind of get the impression that Jude is kind of a little bit wound up by all these ungodly people, don't you? And he says, well, don't worry, because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge them. And that leads us actually on to the reasons, three key reasons for the second coming. You know, a lot of people just are aware of the second coming, that it's when Jesus will come back again. But why? Well, The first reason is really to deliver Israel in the midst of her darkest hour. In Jeremiah chapter 30 verses 6 through 8, it speaks there of the time of Jacob's trouble. A time that is unlike anything Israel have ever gone through before. Hosea 5.15 is a scripture that we're told that Israel will cry out to their Messiah. And it will be that call as they are in the midst of their struggle, about to get crushed under the hand of Antichrist, as they cry out to the Lord that Jesus will come back and intercede on behalf of them. That scripture, Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 4, we read that, or Peter read that for us this morning. Just speaking of that judgment, let's just just turn to that scripture again, because there's a lot in that portion. Just turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Again, we just read this. Who is this that comes from Edom? Again, that's the area where Esau lived. Jacob, if you remember when he comes back from Uncle Laban, says to Esau, that yeah, we'll, come, we'll come and visit you. And he never does. But it's not that it was a broken promise, it's just a timing issue. Because God will allow the Jews to go to Edom, and it will be at this time during the tribulation. But Jesus says here, or, or as I recall, that Jesus is going to come back from Eden with dyed garments from Bosra. This is that glorious in his apparel. Travelling in the greatness of his strength. This is speaking of Jesus. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. As Jesus will come back and intercede at that battle as the forces of Antichrist are looming down on Israel who are hidden in the the deserts of, of Edom. Verse 2 carries on. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treads in the wine fat? And it's speaking the idea here of somebody that's treading on grapes and stamping them. As you stamp on the grapes to get the juice out of the grapes, obviously they're, they're splattering and spurting everywhere. And it's the idea that Jesus is going to come in such a way and destroy his enemies. Verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. What a, a frightening thought. We're talking about Jesus Christ, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild and so on. This is Jesus. They'll be treading the winepress alone. It says, I'll tread them in my anger, trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. He's speaking of Israel, that last verse. He's redeemed of speaking of his brethren according to the flesh, the Jews, who he's going to come back and deliver. Well, the second reason that the second coming has to occur is to judge the ungodly nations of this world that have survived the great tribulation. Those that come out of the other side, well, it's to bring judgment upon them. Let's turn, if you can, to Matthew chapter 25. A very key scripture. Now, this is a portion that a lot of people get fairly confused over because they're not sure, in a sense, who it's talking about or who it's talking to. The whole portion starts in Matthew chapter 24, where the disciples on the Mount of Olives start asking Jesus about the temple and the stones of the temple and so on. And they ask him a very Jewish question. 
And then Jesus goes on to give them an answer from a very Jewish perspective. And when we, a couple of years ago now, studied through Matthew, we looked at this in detail, that everything in Matthew 24 is looking at things from a Jewish perspective. We get to chapter 25 and verse 31 we pick up and we read, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So notice straight away, Jesus is going to come and sit upon his throne. People suggest that these things are allegorical, that it won't really happen, but so many scriptures make it clear. That's not the case. This will really physically happen. Jesus will reign as a king over the earth. And before him shall be gathered all nations. I mean, just imagine, you know, Jesus is going to call the heads of state. Those who have had control over their own nations of this world. And by the way, the the ten kings that we read about in uh, Revelation 13 and elsewhere, and Revelation 17, they're not going to destroy all the other kings. There will still be other kings in existence, but they will have the the power, as it were. All of the kings of the earth are going to be gathered together. Before him shall be gathered the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer and say, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw thee sick, or in prison, and came to thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren. Speaking of Israel, you've done it unto me. You know, anti-Semitism is rife throughout the world, but there are nations, there are groups of people that are supported and stood by Israel. Those to whom that can be said, will be ushered into the millennial kingdom and the blessings that will await them there. But verse 41 then carries on and says, Then should he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And by the way, hell was not prepared for man. God doesn't want any man to go to hell. It was for the devil and his angels. But if men refuse to follow God and to reject Jesus as the one and only saviour, then there is no other option. We read verse 42, For I was a hungered and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you took me not in naked and you clothed me not sick and in prison and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered or a thirst or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto thee? Almost arrogantly saying these things. Then shall he answer them saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not, to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And so at the time of the second coming, the nations will be gathered together and this judgment will happen. It's a judgment of the nations of the world, depending upon how they have treated Israel. And I have to say, I fear for this country, as we look at our own history, and the way we have broken promises to Israel and lied to them and not stood with them. The third and final reason for the second coming is to re-establish the throne of David. And there are many scriptures that refer to this, and I'll leave them there, and I encourage you to look at them in your own time. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, a very key scripture, verses 12 through 16, where David is promised that his offspring was sit on the throne. Now initially in the context is talking clearly of Solomon, because it says, and he shall build my temple. But then it goes on, and it looks a much further span because then it speaks of one of David's descendants sitting on the throne forever. It speaks of the Messiah. And David is just overwhelmed by God's grace. The one of his descendants would sit on the throne. In Luke chapter 1, Gabriel speaks to Mary and there makes it very clear that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. And as we mentioned earlier on, Acts chapter 1 verse 6, the disciples ask, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, not yet. But it's going to happen. So let's jump into chapter 19. Now we understand the reasons why these things are all going to come to pass. Now, the first thing we're going to find after these things, that Greek word that we've seen a few times, metatauta, literally means after these things, what is going to, you know, this is now following what we've already seen. 
I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honour and power unto the Lord our God. Now the context of this is following on from what we've seen in chapter 17 and 18. That is the destruction of this false religious system. So chronologically, this cry of celebration may well fit around about the three and a half year point. It doesn't necessarily have to follow that this is right towards the end. John just simply says that after he saw the things that were revealed to him in 17 and 18, then the Lord allows him to hear this cry of these saints in heaven praising God. Now, just to mention as well, that word, Alleluia, it's, it's an untranslated, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word. In Hebrew, we have Hallelujah with an H, and the Greek is Alleluia. It's just this beautiful word that really means praise Yahweh. One of the commentators that actually said, that uh, it was considered an angelic word, which cannot be fully reproduced in any language of man. And it concurs with this idea of just this whole of the blessedness of heaven being just brought into this one word, this word used to praise God, this word that's used in heaven. But it's used four times in this chapter. And that's where we, we see it used in the New Testament. So this praise, this cry, this declaration of God being faithful, true and so on continues. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia! And the smoke rose up forever and ever. Just notice that that is a continual thing. It's not a, it's there as a reminder forever of this judgment that God brings against this false religious system. And the four and twenty elders, and by the way, that's the last time we're seen as elders. From here on, we'll be seen as the bride of Christ. The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God, the sound of the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. You know, it's good practice for us to spend time on our knees before God. You know, Jesus spoke of going into that quiet place, away from the world, away from other distractions, and praying. You know, and if you feel that God leads you to do it, if you feel that you're able to do it, to get on your knees, even just to lay out before him and realize who he is. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to be spending a lot of time falling down before him. All through these verses we've looked at, whenever you look at the church, we're mentioned and then we're seen falling down before him. Just in absolute worship and awe and reverence. And we probably need to get a bigger understanding of who God is right here, right now. To not just treat God as our friend. Of course, we have that privilege. But this is God. And you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is also God. I mean, all of heaven's resource has been given that you, when you walk out of here this morning and you go through this week, God will come with you. God has promised to be in you. And that should affect everything that we do, every place we go, everything that we set our eyes upon. Because God has promised to come with us and to be in us. No wonder, again, they say, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. It doesn't matter what rank you are, it doesn't matter what ministry or gifting or whatever you have, we will all be in the same place, small, great, doesn't matter, we'll be before the throne worshipping God those that have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Then we move on, the next section, the next few verses in chapter 19, will deal with the marriage of the Lamb. So following that response about Babylon's destruction, we now look at probably one of the most anticipated events in history, whether you realised it or not. Because it's the moment that the heavenly bridegroom receives his bride. You actually start to realise as you study scripture that everything has been about this. It's all been about Jesus Obtaining a bride for himself. All of the situation with going through creation and the Garden of Eden and the fall and all the Old Testament and the nation of Israel bringing about the birth of the Messiah that he would die in our place has all been about bringing a bride to Jesus. It's one of the key themes of the whole of Scripture. Paul emphasizes this Spiritual union. Let's just turn in our Bibles to Ephesians 5. It's the passage where Paul speaks very clearly on this subject. Ephesians 5, we read from verse 22. 
It just says, wives, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he's the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so that wives be their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And it's been said before that there is no wife that would have a problem submitting to a husband if the husband loved the wife as Christ loved the church. That is the goal. That is what we should be aiming at in our relationships and our marriages. This is, by the way, what marriage is about. The world thinks it can play with these things. It thinks they can redefine what marriage is. You cannot redefine it because God has told us what marriage is. We read on. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That's an important point. We'll come back to that a little bit later. This washing. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. You know, those of you who have been brides here, and imagine on your wedding day, you didn't just lay in and get up and like, oh, that'll do. And imagine there's a bit of preparation. I say, you know, Joy, I mean, most days she's late for things, but this occasion she was on time and she was beautiful. No, she's beautiful all the time. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting for a moment there that but what brides on their wedding day put that effort in. They really look glorious. And that's how the church is to be. That he might present it, that Christ might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The soul are meant to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. That's day or that's marriage. They're speaking of a, a man and a woman. Leaving their parents, be joined together and becoming one flesh. But then this is the key thing. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What Paul says is all of this is about Jesus. Marriage is, is simply there for one purpose alone. Because there won't be marriage in heaven. Marriage is here for now to help us understand what God is trying to do in providing a bride for Jesus. And that's what our marriages should reflect. That's why we are, as men, to reflect Christ, and that's why wives are to reflect the church. John 14, verse 1 to 3, Jesus there tells his disciples that just as a typical Jewish bridegroom would do, that he was going away to prepare a place for them. He was going to return to his father's house. and Typically a Jewish groom would go to his father's house, they'd build on to the side of it, and then when it was all done, when it was ready, they would come back at a time unannounced. And Jesus seemingly has this intention of modelling what he's doing on a Jewish wedding for his own wedding plans. I mean, this is an incredible study in and itself, but let me just very quickly give you some highlights. In a Jewish wedding, they have the ketubah, or the betrothal. It's far more than our engagement. It's at this point that the payment of the purchase price is given. And of course, Christ paid the ultimate price to purchase his bride. But in a Jewish wedding, that payment price is made at this time of the betrothal. The idea is then that the bride is set apart and sanctified throughout this period of time. There's a number of scriptures that will be in the notes. You can look at them as we move on. But the bridegroom, as I said, departs to his father's house and prepares this additional room in a Jewish wedding and the bride would then prepare for his imminent return. Uh, By the way, while the bride is preparing for the return, there would be a, somebody assigned to the bride to accompany her, to help her get ready. Well, we've had the same. We've had the Holy Spirit assigned to us to help us get ready for our wedding day. That we might be purged. The, the mikvah is one of the, the, the baths that they have. The, the, the bride typically would have the ceremonial cleansing in preparation for a wedding day. Well, we are also to be bathed. But we're to be washed in the water of the word. As I said, a, a time unannounced, the groom will return. There'll be the blowing of the, the chauffeur, the, the ram's horn. And we get to the wedding day. And typically it'll be a seven-day marriage supper. A number of references in Scripture to that. It's just an incredible plan and model. There's a lot more detail that we could go into. And everything here speaks of Christ and his church. And it's intentionally designed to model a Jewish wedding. So that we can get it, so that we understand it. Verse 6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. And we've spoken of them earlier this morning. And those were the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thunders, saying, 
Alleluia. There we have that word again. For the Lord God, all-powerful, omnipotent, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. Notice it's the great multitude that are making this declaration here. Yeah, just to make the obvious point, it means that the great multitude are not themselves the bride. And we're told, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Well, every bride wants to wear a beautiful dress on the day. And for us it's no different. We're granted that we should be arrayed in this fine linen, clean and white. Pure and just beautiful. And then, interestingly, we're told, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Or, some translations have it, the righteous works of the saints. That's, that's the idea, the implication that's there. Doesn't that strike you a little bit strange? Because aren't we clothed in Christ's righteousness? Well, this is an interesting line of study. You see, I read to you from uh, J. Vernon McGee, just some comments. He says, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The wedding gown of the church is the righteous acts of the saints. This is a difficult concept to accept. Because it's impossible for us to stand before Christ in our own righteousness. Paul wrote of this and Quoting from Philippians 3, 9, he says, And being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the flesh, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He carries on and says, You see, by faith we can trust Christ, not only for the forgiveness of sins, but also for the impartation to us of his own righteousness. But then why does John say that the wedding garment is the righteous acts of the saints? Well, the wedding gown will be used only once. But we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ throughout eternity. We as believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sins in reference to salvation, but for rewards. Throughout, or through the ages, believers have been performing righteous acts which have been accumulating to adorn the wedding gown. By the way, what are you doing to adorn that wedding gown? What are you doing for the Lord today? J. Vernon McGee asks. It's just poignant because it's almost as if this clothing just speaks of the love that we have for Jesus. The righteous acts, things that you've done for the kingdom, things you've done for Jesus will be part of the clothing on that day. They will all speak of your love for your bridegroom, for our bridegroom. It's the wonderful picture that's given to us here And incredible again that we have this privilege of being able to do things that really the only purpose of them is to tell Jesus how much we love him and how grateful we are. Verse 9 says, And he said to me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So let me just ask the question, Who are these wedding guests? Who is it that is called to the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's, It's clearly not the bride in the context here. You see, the church is the bride. It's not the bride. It has to be something other than the bride. So it only leaves two groups from what we have. It's either the Old Testament saints, and that some people will argue that, or it's the tribulation saints that are in question. Now, to me, and we'll look at it in more detail in just a second, but it seems very clear that it's got to be the tribulation saints. They're referred to as the great multitude. It's the great multitude that are making this announcement that the wedding has come. And it's almost as if they're saying, blessed are those that are called, knowing that it's them that have been called to this marriage supper. See how grateful they be to have been caught out of this tribulation, just as the deception on the world was getting all-consuming and smothering. By God's grace, they were caught out of this world. No doubt they would say, blessed are those that are called to this marriage supper. They're the ones who are announcing it now. So that does leave another question. And that simply is, are the Old Testament saints, therefore, part of the bride... Or are they among the wedding guests? Because there are scholars that will fall on either side of this. I'll share with you what I feel. And it's one of the reasons people think that these wedding guests will include Old Testament saints is for what John the Baptist said in John 3.29. He said there, He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which stands and hears him rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So the suggestion is that John was saying that he's not the bride, that he has this role of being the bridegroom. I just want to read to you a comment of David Guzik. He says, what this verse is saying is that John is the best man. 
who in Jewish weddings arranged many of the details of the wedding and brought the bride to the groom. This is in effect what John the Baptist came to do. He pointed the way to the Messiah, leading the bride to the groom. John 3.29, I don't think then appears or, or applies to the idea that this is saying the Old Testament saints are not to be part of the bride of Christ or the church. And I'll give you a couple of scriptural reasons for that. Because in Galatians 3.28, we find that the church was set up to unite both the Jews and the Gentiles, to bring all together in Christ, all together in one. That there would be this middle wall of partition be broken down, that there would be no difference between us now. And of course it makes sense that God would bring together all those who are his within the confines of the church, the church that he came to build. We also know the thief on the cross who... Jesus tells him that that day when he were to die, he would be with Jesus in paradise. Most scholars are fairly agreed on the idea that that's the same place as Abraham's bosom, the place spoken of in Luke 16.22. That's clearly where the Old Testament saints had gone. And yet this individual now, who we would argue is part of the church, he put his faith in Jesus, who was saved in the same way that we are saved. Seemingly all gone to the same place, all in the same position. So if the thief on the cross, Abraham, David, Daniel, all those Old Testament saints are in the same place, it seems reasonable that there's no distinction between them either. So they can all be considered part of the church and part of the bride of Christ. And finally, around the New Jerusalem, when we get there in a few weeks' time, we'll find there's 12 gates. And there's 12 tribes of Israel named on them. There's also 12 foundation stones named after the apostles. So both the Old and New Testament believers united for eternity. So I leave it with you, but I feel that the Old Testament saints will be with the New Testament saints. We'll be one body there as the bride of Christ for eternity. And just actually as a, a final scripture on this one, um, I believe it's Matthew spoke of um, those coming from the east and the west and sitting down with Abraham. Speaking of the Gentiles that would be grafted in, that would come in to the kingdom. So another reference seemingly suggesting that to be the case. So let's move on. Verse 10. I fell at his feet as to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren, that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I just wonder whether this is Daniel, because clearly it's a fellow servant of thy brethren, who has the testimony of Jesus. Three things. This doesn't seem to be an angelic being that's revealing this to John at this point. We had a similar example previously, and at the time we suggested maybe it could be Daniel. It doesn't really mean anything, it doesn't matter one way or another, just conjecture. Um, But it's somebody who has understanding of prophecy and all of these things. And again, the point is that all prophecy should point us to Jesus. Prophecy that is there just purely for fascination or titillation or whatever else, if it doesn't bring you to Jesus, then move on. John Valrud makes this comment, he says, this means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. I like that. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse And he that sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. David Guzik makes a comment, there is a sense in which all previous in Revelation has been an introduction to this Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now he returns to earth in power and glory. Almost as if everything has come together to this moment, as Jesus is stepping out of heaven now to return to claim his throne, to set up his kingdom. Notice again the white horse It's interesting because typically if the king was coming in a time of war, they would come on a horse. If they were coming in a time of peace, they would come on a donkey. Well, Jesus, the first time he comes, comes into Jerusalem on a donkey because it was a time of peace. He was coming to bring peace, ultimately reconciliation between God and man. But this time he comes on a white horse. There's so many prophecies all being fulfilled at this particular moment. Verse 12 says, His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And in name written that no man knew but he himself. Spurgeon says this. Why are they like flames of fire? Why first discern the secrets of all hearts? He's speaking of his, the eyes of Jesus. 
There are no secrets here that Christ does not see. There is no lewd thought. There is no unbelieving skepticism that Christ does not read. There is no hypocrisy, no formalism, no deceit that he does not scan as easily as a man reads a page in a book. His eyes are like a flame of fire to read us through and through and to know us to our innermost soul. Speaking of the crowns, we've mentioned already these rewards that are given. So the last time Jesus was on earth, he wore a crown of thorns. Now he has a crown that speaks of the adoration of the saints to him. As we've crowned him with many crowns, as we sing. As we've thrown those cast, cast those crowns before the throne. And that crown, by the way, in the Greek is a diadem. It's a royal crown, a crown of authority. Uh, there's, again, a suggestion here that the name that no man knows may well be the tetragrammaton. That's the idea of in, in the, the Hebrew, uh, where we would say Jehovah or Yahweh. They would just have the letters Y-H-W-H, typically, as we would translate it. Those four letters, because they believe the name of God was so holy it shouldn't be uttered or pronounced. And so maybe some scholars feel it's that name that here that, that we don't really fully understand. It's beyond us. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. I was studying this during the week, and I looked at it. And my first thought was this is speaking, as we saw earlier, about the one that comes from Eden with his garments dyed red. And I think, oh, there's another reference to that. I thought, no, it's not that, because Jesus is coming out of heaven. He hasn't yet got to his enemies. I had the blessing and pleasure at the conference of just having a chat with Bill Gallatin. Bill Gallatin, one of the old, old Senior pastor is almost like an apostle really in age now. Um, wonderful man of God. He's taught the Bible for many, many years. And I just went and said to him, Bill, whose blood is this? And he said, well, the only blood in heaven would be Jesus's. He said, this is Jesus' blood. And it immediately drew me to the passage that we have in the book of Genesis. Just turn with me, Genesis 37, verse 31 to 33. Now, if you remember the account, Joseph had had his dreams and the brothers were not particularly pleased with him. They sent him off, or sent the brothers off to go and do their sheep farming and try and find uh, food for the sheep to eat. And then Joseph is sent to go and check on his brother's well-being and they see him coming and they decide they're going to concoct this plan and they initially put him down a well and then they eventually sell him to the Ishmaelites and he's taken to Egypt. In verse 31, they've got this problem because they think, how do we convince our father that he's dead? Verse 31 says, And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colours and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or not. See, we have here a scapegoat pictured. An innocent sacrifice. And the blood of this garment is dipped in that blood to provide proof to the Father that this blood had been shed. Now, in this scene here in heaven, it's Christ's blood who had been shed. It's Christ's blood. He was the, the scapegoat. He was the innocent one who had been slain in our place. And effectively, this blood had been presented seemingly to the Father as evidence that his own son had given his life for us. Of course, we know that it was the Father who raised Christ from the dead. But what a, a testimony, what a powerful thing. Even as we get to this moment when we are really here and looking at those things, to see the blood on the garment, rec- re- recognizing again that Jesus was the scapegoat for us. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and, tr- white and clean. Now, we do know, we've already seen in the passage in Isaiah, that the angels will return with Jesus at this point. But clearly, this is a reference to the saints, because we're told again of our apparel, of our clothing, which is only reference to the saints here. Interesting, though, I just want to point out this, that we don't have to fight. When we come back with Jesus at the second coming, we don't have to fight. And I make that point because... Our fight is now. This is when we have to struggle. And actually, there are probably some of us here that would prefer the, the drama of this scene, coming back with Jesus to take on the enemy. I mean, a bit like Peter at the Garden of Gethsemane, when he draws out his sword. And, you know, particularly men, we, we, we love that kind of uh, the excitement of all that. Peter just charging in. You know, Jesus is standing next to me. What could possibly go wrong? 
Well, I'm sure that some of us, if we were given the opportunity, would love to go and fight against Jesus' enemies. But we don't get to fight. Jesus is the only one that does the fighting. The fight for us is right now. This is where the challenge is. You know, it's harder for us to live our lives now in obedience than it would be to come back and fight for Jesus then. And that's why this is our fight. This is where we have to prove our worth in a sense and our love for Christ right now. You know, we, we could go on this morning. I'm going to stop here because I think it's an important point just to, to leave it on. And I just encourage you as you go through this week, we're going to come back with Jesus, job done. Everything has been sorted. We've been saved, we've been washed, we've been cleansed. We get to ride on these lovely white horses. We get to be clothed in this fine linen. We're told that that fine linen is the righteous works that we've done, that we get to have in a sense, almost like trophies, but they are purely just to speak of our love for Jesus. Well, where do we earn those? We earn those by living lives of obedience now. You see, Jesus will fight against his enemies when he comes back, but it's now that we are wrestling against sin. It's now that we have that sin which so easily ensnares us. Remember again that Jesus is wanting a bride that is holy, that is cleansed, that is washed. Washed in the water of the word. Can I encourage you to do one thing this week? Just at some point or as many times as you get opportunity, just... Every distraction aside, telly off, whatever, just, and just get the Bible and sit down. And just spend a bit of time, just you and Jesus. I'm not talking about Bible study, that's good to do. I'm not talking about your devotions, that's all good to do as well. I'm talking about you just getting down and reading the Bible. And just looking at whatever it is you happen to read for Jesus. Let Jesus speak to you through his word. Let him challenge you as to how we're living our lives. Because we are to be holy. And you know, once again, we'll, we'll pick it up next week from this point and we'll look at the judgment that falls upon the, the world. There are people around us this morning in these houses and in this town and further afield that need to know the truth of these things. They need to know Jesus. And how are they going to hear if there isn't somebody sent to preach and speak the gospel of truth to them? It's not easy to go, you know, we can't just go knocking on doors, you know, and even if we did, probably people would slam them in our faces. We need a work of the Holy Spirit. One of the teachings at the conference this week was about blockages that prevent the Holy Spirit from working. So maybe it would be a good thing this week for individually us to pray that if there is anything in our lives that would be a blockage to the Holy Spirit working, that the Lord would remove it. However painful that may be, that God would just lead us to a place where we can be holy before him and that God can work through us. And we should be praying that the Lord add to our number because there are people that we don't want to see them going to hell. We don't want to see them being part of this judgment as Jesus comes back. There's a chance for them now to be saved. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for these things that are revealed. And thank you, Lord, also for making this personal to us. It's not just details about what is going to happen. Jesus, I thank you that you were that scapegoat. You were the one whose blood was shed. Lord, how our Heavenly Father must have felt as beyond our comprehension to imagine the pain knowing that his son was crucified for us and that all of God's wrath, all of the Father's wrath was poured upon you so that we can have this relationship. Oh, my Father, we thank you that we don't have to fight when we come back with you at the second coming. But Lord, we acknowledge that our fight is now. And we know, Lord, that sin lies at the door. So help us, Lord, to flee. Help us, Lord, to run from sin. Lord, not to countenance it for a moment, not to look upon it, But Lord, to guard our hearts and our minds, to make a covenant with our eyes as Job prayed, to remind ourselves continually that we have been bought at a price, therefore we are to glorify God in our body and our spirits, which is the Lord's. We are yours, you've purchased us. So by your grace, Lord, help us to fight against sin this week in our lives. Lord, whether it be the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life, Whether it be, Lord, wrong attitudes and emotions, things that we should let go, things that 
we've harboured for too long. Whatever it is, Lord, let's take another step towards being cleansed. That we would be that bride that you want us to be. Without spot, without blemish. We can't do it by our strength. Lord, we need your spirit. We need your grace. And so we ask an abundance of that grace now as we go through this coming week. That we may live for you. And that we may shine brightly as lights to this world. We ask it in the precious name of our Savior who shed his blood for us. In Yeshua's name. Amen.